0: Hello and welcome to the Maths Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 560. Releasing January 5 on Netflix is Man on the Run, a documentary that delves into the 1MDB wealth fund scandal and Joe Lowe, the mysterious businessman and notorious playboy who lauded $5 billion to fund his lavish lifestyle an investigative documentary that stretches across the globe through Hollywood, Wall Street, and international politics. Man on the Run is an enthralling watch. I really recommend people do watch this documentary when it comes out January five, because a lot of people are going to be talking about it. And right now, I'm thrilled to talk to the film's director, Cassius Michael Kim. Cassius, how are you today, sir? I'm
1: very well, Matt.
0: How are you? I am very well. I am still thinking about this documentary because this is a movie that deals with a lot of money, a lot of players, a lot of institutions. When it comes to you as a film's director and and, and producer, where do you start with this? I I mean, I think it's simple enough to say I start from the beginning, but what is the beginning really when it comes to the one MDB scandal?
1: Well, I think the beginning is kind of that inception of the seed in Jolo's mind about how can I gain international influence and money and power... But to me, that wasn't really the best place to start for the audience, right? Because especially in subject matter that has to do with financial crimes, uh, it can be dry, it can be dense. So for us, I thought the best place to start would be Hollywood. You know, this the, mm. the most salacious part of it. Um, by no means do I think it's the most important part of it, but it's an easy way for people to get in glimpse into what was motivating some of these people like what compels someone to steal billions of dollars only to then pay celebrities six figure sums a night to hang out with them for many many years you know what what is what is the motivation for something so inane and stupid (laughs) so i mean for me that was a perfect place to start and also the obvious metaphor to the wolf of wall street Mm -hmm. which was financed by dirty stolen 1MDB money, um, yeah, I think that was a great entry point for most people.
0: I imagine as well that while some people might not remember 1MDB scandal as in its totality, they might remember he, he, reading the story about Britney Spears jumping out the birthday cake because something party, right?
1: Exactly, and I think this story is filled with little instances like that where Most people going through their day-to-day life over the past decade might have heard about one or two of these things. Uh, You know, Joe Lowe used to show up in page six of the New York Post. Uh, Someone might have seen a headline about the Wolf of Wall Street having to give up their profits or Britney Spears jumping out of a cake or Miranda Kerr with her see-through piano. The feds couldn't get out of the house. I mean, Mm. but then... How do you put all those things together and form this vast, intricate web that forms the foundation of 1MDB?
0: Big vital to the documentary is, of course, the country of Malaysia. Um, what is it about that country at that time that made it right for a scandal like this to thrive? What was the conditions at that time to really bring about not only the, the people involved, but also, you know, it's very kind of like in a sort of way, uh, a place where... At least it used to be um a place where the power structure there was something that was really kind of embedded for it as a generational thing, wasn't it, for a very long time?
1: One hundred percent. Um, Malaysia, you know, is a is a young country. Um, it's only been around for about sixty five years. It's a young democracy, mm. uh, and it's a test of democracy in a region that hadn't had it before. So, it's also a country that was kind of put together arbitrarily based on different kinds of power sharing agreements and. Uh, ethnic divides. So the institutions of that country uh, aren't strong or haven't been strong. And as you mentioned, you know, like generational rule, uh, the former Prime Minister Najib Razak, who appears in the film, his father was Prime Minister of Malaysia. And, you know, when institutions aren't strong and when there aren't safeguards and regulations over the power of the most powerful, I think those are some of the conditions that make the country right for this kind of exploitation.
0: I think uh, something that this film does really well is that over the last several years, maybe longer, the faith in institutions, especially in the Western world, let's just say, the the, the confidence in them, whether it be media, government, financial, whatever, has really been just like, like at the, its lowest step, you know. Um, uh, government agencies, FBI, DOJ, have, have long like, now been involved in scandals and such. What this film does to me, I think, shows those institutions um, doing the job, doing what is important. They're the ones, the journalists are speaking out, the FBI is investigating um, you know, uh, and then later on, you see kind of like the ramifications of that when people are supposed to do their job as in the institutions that are supposed to do exactly what they do in the movie, which is they hunt down these guys, they investigate it, they bring it to the fore. Was it really important to you? I'm not saying it was a, like a crusading thing or anything, but was it important to you to make sure that you highlight that look? Bad things can happen sometimes at these institutions, but a lot there's a lot of good people that work during, in the media still. There's a lot of good people who work in the FBI still, and they're on top of a lot of these things that, you know, we're not even thinking about a lot of the times when it comes to a lot of these billions of dollars being laundered uh, around the world.
1: Well, you know, for me, it was important to highlight these specific people, right? Because I think, as you mentioned, with faith in institutions at an all-time low, I think societally, especially in the Western world and beyond, um and especially in america here uh i think faith in law enforcement and the conversation around law enforcement has shifted and has taken on a lot more nuance and i think Mm -hmm. rightfully so but specific to this case uh it's very black and white you know like they're the bad guys and then here are the people who overcame significant obstacles to make sure there was some measure of accountability brought to the people who did the malfeasance and, you know, when when that happens, you have to celebrate it. You know, I mean, obviously, law enforcement is a very complicated conversation for people all over the world. But in this situation, um, the institutions held firm. And I think in that way, it is a shining example of what can happen when institutions are formed around people of good ethics who are trying to do the job they're supposed to do. Uh, and that's the idealized situation. Now, that doesn't always happen, but when it does happen, you want to point it out and you want to highlight uh, the exemplary conduct of these people.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I think it's, it's just excellent how Man on the Run does that as well, i got to say. Um, you know, when it comes to a documentary like Man on the Run, especially like in Best of Game documentary, a lot of times the uh, documentary uh, the journalism uh, that is in it is only as good as the people that you talk to in a movie. You need to make sure you research and talk it to the best people um, and you're getting the right information. And in this case, you guys had like this access to like key individuals involved in the story who like, I imagine maybe at first were like, ah, no, I'm good. I'm going to I'm going to stay where I am right now. Um, how important was it for you to make sure that you get in touch with the right people to talk about this story and also, when it comes to yourself as a as an interviewer, um, or or people in your in your in your, in your uh, team as well, how important was it to just be on top of your brief to make sure that you can get the ask the right questions to get the right information as well for the documentary?
1: Well, you know, you nailed it when you said it. Like any documentary, is only as good as the people you talk to. So, going into this project, obviously, we had certain people that we couldn't make the film without, mm-hmm. um, and because it's a years long process, um, you have to just you have to come correct. You have to present the idea of what you're trying to do. Uh, you have to be honest and transparent about it, and you have to develop relationships with people. Um, and that's one of the best parts of the job, because uh, you know, obviously, with this film, especially with the journalists, I have so so much admiration for the people who actually uncovered the story. You know, all I'm doing is kind of wrapping their work in a nice little visual package and putting a little bow on it. But really, they're the people that did all the real work. They're the people who suffered through, you know, investigations and oppression from the government and threats to their lives. So I was more than happy to reach out and speak to them. And obviously, it's not always an easy process because of what they've endured, I think, Um, because also they might not be happy with some of the other portrayals of the story that have taken place in the past. Um, But, you know, the first... Domino really was Bill McMurray, uh, the former supervisor of the FBI International Corruption Squad, and I, you know, if I can give you a little aside, I'd initially reached out to Rob Hughling, who was the primary forensic accounting analyst um, tracing the money for the FBI, Uh, And, you know, if you speak to anyone, they'll always cite him as the guy who really did a lot of the investigatory work. But when I reached out to him, he was still at the FBI and couldn't speak to me. Uh, In fact, I never even heard back from him. But he forwarded my email to Bill, his friend and former supervisor who had left the agency. And then Bill reached out to me and we began speaking. And I explained to him exactly what kind of project I was trying to make. And this was back in the summer of 2021 hmm. um and then from there it just you know bill agreed to speak to me and really like bill introduced me then to kyle freeney uh the former doj prosecutor on the one MDB case she was also a part of the Mueller report um and then he introduced me to bradley hope who uh the author of billion dollar whale and who's reporting for the wall street journal just did so much and then bradley introduced me to Claire rue castle brown and you know it just expanded and expanded you know and uh one one step at a time you know you establish genuine connections with people and you kind of establish your bona fides and what you're trying to do and out of i think mutual respect and uh an understanding and also <laughs> it's funny man there's kind of this like one mdb support group uh mm. that i'm not a part of but it's like the people who uh, like bill and rob and kyle and wooly and bradley and all these people um they are so invested in this case, it's, you know, it's rightfully, it's probably, I can't imagine many more cases bigger than this for people in law enforcement or even in journalism. And they endured so much to make sure this story uh, got out of the dirt and was, you know, executed by law enforcement. Um, So I think they have a lot still at stake to make sure that, you know, the accountability is achieved, that justice is achieved. Um, so there a that ne- they all keep in touch. And it's something I really admire about them. You know, like I was fortunate enough to see so many of them when we took the film on tour uh, and premiered it in theaters internationally. Uh, like in London, Bradley was there. Rob was there. Papier Giusto. Um, and to see them catch up and talk. And in New York, Bill was there with Calfrini and Rob came there, too. And just to see these guys connect and reconnect and just like having so much admiration for what they have done on this case. Uh, it was a real neat moment.
0: The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by TeePublic. TeePublic is the world's largest marketplace for independent creators to sell their work on the highest quality merchandise. With over 1.2 million designs, TeePublic is sure to have something you'll love. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by Gift Card Store. Australia's leading provider of gift cards, Gift Card Store offers a variety of prepaid MasterCard and Visa cards in physical or e-card format. You can even design your own card as the ultimate personalized gift. With Gift Card Store, you can gift the gift you know they will love. Please support Matt's movie reviews on Patreon. Get access to exclusive content, request movie reviews on top 10 lists, and help support my work. Please click on the Patreon link in the description below. Um, a phrase you used before was uh put it together in a nice little package. Well, I want to call it a little package. This is like a big package, this is like a time bomb on a documentary, number one. Number two, um when it comes to that package, when it comes to putting this together in the editing room, I imagine that would have been an incredible stressful situation considering the content that you had, the interviews you had, how you had to put everything together. What was that like for you and your editing team putting this together? Because I imagine Post on this film would have been something else altogether.
1: Oh yeah, man. Post was, uh, was a trip. We had two excellent editors, uh, Carl Dawson out of Brooklyn and John Connor out of Philadelphia. And Carl... Uh, began the process with me storyboarding all the beats and then I put together like a 70-page script based on all the interviews and Carl helped me kind of chart the storyline and then we put it together in the edit and then John came on about halfway through and then we crafted it all from there but really you know it's such a vast story. I remember about midway through the edit I visited Carl first for like eight days and then John for eight days and rewrote the entire movie backwards from the ending. Cause um, I knew how I wanted it to end. Uh, There's a real beautiful moment uh, in scene where we were walking the night market during Ramadan with Charles O'Neill and David Smith, the former legal attache officers for the FBI in Kuala Lumpur. And you hear the call to prayer. And there are these stoic FBI G-men just like staring off into the distance, chewing this idea of Jolo still being out there and this lack of accountability, right? And I just thought that's that's it, you know, like there's some accountability, but there's so much to be done and there's so much that hasn't been done. Um, so that was the feeling that I wanted to end on. But then like, how do you get to that point uh, in a natural narrative way, but also, you know, with documentary, you have obligations, Uh, to explain things um that can sometimes clutter the flow of the editorial um but at the same time you have to explain them because uh what is the point of explaining the election if people don't understand how the malaysian political system works right and so it's all those kind of decisions um there are a million ways we could have gone with this we have an excellent team at least shoreland our producer ron on the tour fabian joseph um we just had a great team of Producers and journalists who help put all this together, and yeah, and I, I mean, especially like the Goldman Sachs part. Like, how much of it do you explain? The context, um, yeah. It was it was a lift, but uh, I feel like we, you know, I don't know if we stuck the landing completely, but it's it's a lot. You know, it's a fire hose of information, and it's all of that balance of how many layers of the onion do you peel? You know, like mm. what is most important in the visual medium to explain to the audience and those are some of the toughest choices right like do you explain exactly how jolo would create these shell companies of companies that sound like real entities but you know aren't and then that's how he funneled the money but then it's like then you spend five minutes explaining this financial shenanigan but really at the end of the day what is the audience going to take away from it? that he stole the money right so it's like how much do you give? How much do you hold back? Because, you know, if you want those kind of minute details, Bradley and Tom Wright's book, Billion Dollar Will, is excellent for that. But for us, like, it's about capturing more of, like, the emotion of the experience and the resonance of what these people are left with. I thought that was more important than maybe some of the technical black and white stuff.
0: Speaking of the visual presentation, there's animations and illustrations throughout the film. The illustrations kind of like almost these kind of caricature kind of uh, um, uh, animations it kind of remind me some of the stuff that um, uh, Terry Gilliam did with like Monty Python back in the day as well. That kind of like animation as well. Was, was he kind of like an influence in regards to how you want to approach the animations, especially of the political figures uh, in your documentary?
1: Uh, I don't know if Terry Gilliam was a direct influence on this, although I am very fond of his work. But, um, you know, it's a funny story. Uh, we were, through John Connor, my editor, we were one of the first people to get a, a beta version of MidJourney, the AI image generator, mm-hmm. uh, for testing during post-production. And i had always wanted to present some of this cast of villains in a way that denotes, I think, contempt for who they are, but also, you know, an interesting visual presentation. Also, um, a lot of these people have spent a lot of money erasing themselves off the internet so it's actually quite difficult to find pictures of a lot of these people so it was just a, a natural end point for that and you know i love animation and it's a big part of a lot of my work so being able to utilize this new technology and then present these people in caricature form as you mentioned that's exactly right um that was very important to us and i think forms a nice through line throughout the film for you know, visually representing the actions we're speaking of at the time as well. You know, I think there's one image of Najib Razak I'm very fond of, where we asked the uh, AI generator to give us Najib Razak if he was in Game of Thrones.
0: <laughs> I think I know the one that came up as well. Though. I can imagine now in my head. Um, you spoke before about how a lot of a lot of effort is put into from the, from these people to kind of like erase themselves from the from the public. You know to make sure they stay in the shadows you know and that's the whole point of them right they're the puppet masters they're not like the front they're the people behind the scenes I think what is so interesting about Joe Lowe is that I mean I can just imagine it kind of reminds me of the scene uh of course you will know the movie Goodfellas where after they do the big um, heist and then they're celebrating in the bar and all these gangsters start coming in with the mint coats and everything yeah, you know what I mean. You know exactly yeah. what I mean. And De Niro's like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" You know, <laughs> it's like that. Like times like five billion, right? Yeah. Um, what he's doing. Um, I can only imagine the reactions from a lot of the people, whether it be like from Goldman Sachs or from you know the the Arab Emirates or from or anywhere else. Just watching this guy just hanging, doing these things and funding movies and hanging out with DiCaprio and all. I mean, of all the stuff that he done, I think the brazen personality that he had uh says something about maybe perhaps i don't know maybe when it comes to people working in these financial institutions and handling these copious amounts of money then maybe there should be some type of i don't know psychology test beforehand to check what type of traits they might have uh because you know if you're you're the type of guy who registers registers on in the, in, uh, after a, a one-hour session with a shrink that uh you're the type of guy who's not like, you know, he's gonna have uh, uh Paris party likes a party with Paris Hilton at midnight in the Paris, and maybe you shouldn't be hanging out this money, you know?
1: Well, you know, I did read somewhere that the highest concentration of psychopaths is found in finance. So maybe uh-huh. yeah. that is something they're looking for. But that what you described was the inherent tension amongst all these co-conspirators, right? There's emails we cite in the film where the ambassador to the U.S. and the UAE, Yusuf Aloteba, is communicating with other people in the circle. Like, yeah, we got to put a lid on Jolo, you know? Like And, you know, Tim Leisner is talking about, like, this isn't how you do this. Like, you yeah. take the money and you stay quiet about it. But like you said, Jolo was the guy that couldn't stop buying the mink coats. <laughs> <laughs> or Pink Diamonds, rather, I think was his uh, specialty. Or
0: Invisible Pianos oh my god that's a that's a that's a Lex Luthor supervillain play right there I'll tell you what
1: uh there's a beautiful photo of the piano in Miranda Kerr's house uh Mm -hmm. I believe it was in Vanity Fair magazine and we had gone down the road of licensing this photo because you know what's in the film is a a, like an animation really that we put together in front of the red carpet with the piano but so there is an actual, they did a photo shoot, of course they did, um, you know, Vanity Fair Magazine. It was like, mm, Look at this amazing piano. Miranda Kerr built a wing of her house around. But as we're about to sign the forms, they're like, oh, and you got permission from Miranda Kerr's people, right? And we're like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> we're just going through Getty images. And they're like, no, well, this photo, you have to get permission from her people. So we're like, oh, geez. no, that's not gonna happen.
0: Yeah. But I it's want still to there. Enough. Yeah, still it is still there. I, I made. I I wouldn't be surprised. You know, she does the house tours. Like this is the one that my former, uh, you know, uh, um, fugitive, you know, boyfriend bought for me over here. Yeah, you swing know, in this the house. Um, I want to talk about find a question here. I want to talk about the smoking section, which is your uh, production company. I think what's really important about Man on the Run is that even though this is such a huge scandal. Um, probably the biggest, like, financial kind of scandal in in the history of capitalism, like, you know, that I can, you know, think of anyway, um, that a lot of people don't know that much about the story. And to me, what I think what you guys are doing over in spoken section is you get these stories and you're bringing them to the fore, you're bringing it to the public and you're saying, hey, this has happened, you need to know about it. Um, Is that something of a philosophy that you guys are having with the spoken section that you want to delve into these stories and kind of make sure that people know these things are happening these are the people involved um and you know dude, you can't feign ignorance anymore because you know we, we're talking about it we have it out there you can see it on netflix um and you know it's, it's up to you now whether your conscience can uh, stay quiet or not after the, watching this stuff
1: well you know i appreciate the kind words um for me it's like i think the the route that my career has taken has. uh benefited me into being in all kinds of different environments around the world and talking to all kinds of world leaders and people involved in all kinds of different things. And that kind of exposure has inured me, I think, to some of the other complications that can arise if you aren't used to dealing with this stuff. And I think there are so many complex stories around the world, whether nonfiction, fiction, whatever. And for the smoking section, it's really about bringing complex stories to people in a a manner that's easily understood and easily digestible to streamlining the narrative uh, because I think the only way to make progress in this world is to understand the world that we live in. Right. Mm. And if we can do one little thing to help someone understand something that oftentimes, you know, complex stories are made more complex by the people who perpetrate them because that's the best way to keep people from taking action. You know, you keep people uninformed. That's how you sustain the status quo. So for us, it's always about challenging the status quo uh, and making sure we all live in a world that we understand each other better. And to what end that we can contribute a little to that conversation, uh, I'm, I feel very fortunate to do so.
0: So for everyone out there listening, Man on the Run, January 5, Netflix. This is the type of film I think has, that, you know, where people talk about like a water cooler, you know, movies or permits of pop culture. This one people are going to be talking about for quite some time I mean, quite a bang to start off uh, 2024 as well, i got to say. Um, everyone needs to check this movie out. Uh, and yeah, I mean, this is going to be uh, such incredible to see people re- react to this and think to themselves, how the hell did I not know about this? And uh, I guess I think it's all up, all down to our collective shame that we did. And I guess we get too busy looking at uh, TikTok videos sometimes. But uh, what can you do? Um, but yeah, Cassius, Michael Keem, I thank you so very much for your time today. Congratulations for your film. I look forward to seeing what you guys do with um smoking section uh, moving forward. And, and when the next one comes out, I'd love to talk to you again, So Great job here.
1: Thank you, Matt. Great to speak with you. Happy New Year.